You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. My guest today, together with his many esteemed collaborators, has created innumerable beloved smash hit shows and unforgettable songs that are forever entrenched in the musical theater canon and way beyond that. His phenomenal creations on stage and on screen continue to break box office records all over the world. I'm sure you've heard of a few. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar, Avida, Chess, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, King David, Aida, and so many more. He is the winner of three Oscars, four Grammys, three Golden Globes, three Olivier Awards, three Tony Awards, and an Emmy for the recent Jesus Christ Superstar live and concert production, which was so great. Our guest is one of only 15 people in the entire world ever to become an EGOT. And now, he's a podcaster. Sir Tim Rice, welcome to Deep Dive Broadway. Thank you, Dory. Thank you. I read your magnificent autobiography, Oh, What a Circus. Loved it so much, but it only took us through 1978. So I'm ecstatic. You're now sharing your precious behind-the-scenes stories on your podcast, Get Onto My Cloud. What made you step into the wild world of podcasting? Well, partly because my diary was suddenly empty as a result of the lockdown. But also a good friend of mine, um, who's a well-known cricket commentator, so obviously he doesn't get very well known in America, um, began a podcast himself, and it was rather good. And I thought, I could do this. And um he gave me a couple of links and I began doing it. And I found it quite therapeutic. And going back to various um, episodes in my in my past career, some successful, some definitely not. And I'm finding things out that I didn't really know sometimes, even about my own shows. Um, so, and I, and I think some people might be quite interested in it as well. And I'm trying not to play always obvious stuff. I talk for 20, 25 minutes um, including two or three songs from whatever I'm talking about. And I'm trying not to play the obvious things like, do, you know, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, or stuff from The Lion King that's, 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 that's very well known. I'm trying to find alternate takes or bad versions of things so people can see sometimes how, how one got to the final stage of a certain song or a show. Um, and, and I recently did one on on Superstar on Broadway, which was not, to be brutally honest, an out-and-out success, even though the work survived and has gone on to be around for half a century. But that was very interesting for me, and and I found myself reminiscing a lot about Barry Denon, a wonderful performer who was on the Superstar original studio album. He was on the um, Broadway show. He was in the film. He became a very good friend, and um, we managed to find his last-ever performance as um, Pontius Pilate which I actually saw live in in in, in Holland um, in 2017. And that was, that was really very moving for me to go back and remember 
Barry in particular, who isn't quite as well known in some areas um, as you know other people who are on the, who are on the superstar bandwagon, as it were. Um, but what a great talent, and what a, what a what a what a what a great guy. And um, you know, it was absolutely smashing to get back into a little bit of Barry world as well as Yvonne Elliman world and all that. It, it, it's really it's a treat for me, and I just hope one or two other people quite like it. I thought it was so interesting in that episode uh, with Yvonne Elliman, you talked about how you created uh, a new song for the production when she was in it. How did that come to be? Well, when we did the album of Jesus Christ Superstar, we had no guarantee or even necessarily that that much hope of getting it onto a a stage. We were just making a really good, what we hoped was a really good album and telling a great story in a new way. And we thought maybe it might get staged, but if it doesn't get staged, maybe somebody will like it and commission us to do something else. Um, but of course, the record took off amazingly, particularly in America, almost overnight, and was a massive great hit. And although the, the, the piece as written on the album could have been staged, it wasn't quite right for one or two theatre um, possibilities. And one of the problems was that Mary Magdalene, sung beautifully by Yvonne on the album, disappeared after about 30 minutes. And we we thought, firstly, we, we we needed something extra in the second act between the sort of, I mean, just coming up to the fairly gruesome ending of the show. Um, and I wanted to find something that Yvonne could sing in the second half. And um, we wrote a song, Andrew and I wrote a song called Could We Start Again, Please, which worked really well. And as a result, that song has stayed in all the productions since. And it's been recorded many, many times. But, but it's the one song that wasn't on the original album. Otherwise, the original album, which we recorded in the studio in 1970, is there are very few changes. And one of the good things about being unknown when you're writing something is that people don't try and interfere because they don't think it'll be a hit. So we had nobody else telling us how to do it. We did it ourselves. And when we delivered the finished product, which turned out to our surprise to be a massive success on record, it was difficult for any director to say, right, I want to take out these five songs. He, he, he couldn't really do that. So apart from a few minor tweaks, and not, I mean, I mean, obviously Tom Hogan, the director, didn't want to do that anyway. But um, we might have done something. I mean, I found this later in my career, having had a bit of success and, and, and people then getting interested before it actually comes out because of one's, you know, name, value, whatever that is. And you get far more people once you're successful, telling you what to do, than when you're unknown. When you're unknown, nobody cares what you're doing. When you're successful, everybody has a view. And I think chess in particular suffered from that with too many people chipping in, assuming it was going to be a mega hit. The record did very well, but the show was, I think, slightly clobbered by having too many um, you know, directors, too many producers, too many writers, too many. Everybody was suddenly being helped and they didn't need to be. Well, your career as a successful uh, musical theater lyricist started so early, but even before that, you you had um, uh, some exciting jobs. You were a gas station attendant, I believe. I was really happy doing that. That was a great job. <laughs> and you were also a management trainee at a music company, I believe. Um, well, yes, it wasn't just a music company. It was EMI Records, who really at the time were the biggest company in the world, record company, even though they were based in London. They had the Beatles and they had a whole host of 
groups and acts that that that, that and they, they had the Tamla Motown label in um, in Great Britain. Um, they had the, they owned the Capital um, label with the Beach Boys and Frank Sinatra and all these sort of people. They were a big big company, and I was a humble management trainee, which is a polite way of saying office boy. And I would go in at nine o'clock every morning, clock in, and wear a suit and a tie. Um, this was in the in the in the last days of the record industry being rather res- kind of respectable, and you could almost have been in a lawyer's office. But nowadays, lawyers' offices are real hippie and you know, long hair and everything, um, and uh, dressing down. And the record business, of course, is is is, is like that as well. But it, but in my day, and and I didn't get very far at EMI. I was I was simply a um, bit of a dog's body, but I did learn about recording studios. I went to the recording studios on many occasions at Abbey Road. Um, I learned about all aspects of the business, which proved helpful. But when I left EMI um, and took a gamble and, 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 a, and a risk, as I saw it with Andrew, we were, we'd, we'd found an agent who was happy to pay us a little bit more than my EMI salary. Um, I hadn't, you know, we, we, we hadn't really achieved anything. I'd learned about the business, but we hadn't had any hits or anything like that. But it was invaluable training for the music business. But for the record business, more than theatre. I wasn't, not until I met Andrew, did I even think of going into the theatre. And you were also, you were, at the time when you met him, you were a law student, right? Yes, that was just before I joined EMI. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him and I was still a law student and I was a very unsuccessful law student. I failed my exams uh, with monotonous regularity. And I, it dawned on me by the time I was about 21, this may be not the career for me. Um, I felt at 21 I was rather over the hill and it was almost a bit too late to find something else to do. But I simultaneously met Andrew and then got into EMI. So I had two um, simultaneous uh, career changes at once, if you like. Well, you've, you've had many different careers before before that point in time because I was reading that you were a uh, uh, a rock star um, a vocalist for the Aardvarks as well. Um, well, I, I, I was quite keen to be a rock star, but I never really, I don't think had enough faith in myself. I mean, I wasn't the world's greatest singer. I was quite a good, I had a certain um, stage presence, I suppose, but I never got much chance to demonstrate that. I had a pop group at school and we were always quite popular at the school dances, but there again, we were the only group. So um, it wasn't that difficult, and the audience were basically on our side. Um, but I, I, you know, auditioned for the old group here and there, and I made a demo record, which I hawked around the place, and nobody really liked the demo records particularly, but the songs that I'd written in order to show off my voice, and um, I wrote songs that A, didn't have too much of a range, and B, nobody else had done before, so I couldn't be compared to other versions. And that's why I wrote the songs, not because I particularly thought of myself as a great songwriter. And these were not great songs, but they were nice songs. And one of the songs got picked up and recorded by a group right at the middle of the, well, the beginning of the British beat boom. And um, the group never made it, perhaps because they recorded my song. But I did actually have a single 45 RPM record with my name on it. And in those days, if you had a recording released which could only be done on a piece of plastic with a hole in the middle, that was that was quite an achievement. Nowadays, anybody can make a beautiful CD with 15 tracks, wonderfully packaged, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's good. But because anybody can make a CD or an album or streaming or whatever at home, 
In my day, if you wanted to make a record, very few people had a large record pressing plant in their front room. You, you really had to get somebody else to like it. And the very fact that you were on a label that was an established label meant that somebody else had liked it. So that was like quality control in a way. It wasn't a hit, but it was good enough to get recorded. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. And all these extraordinary experiences that you had, including being a gas attendant, um, clearly contributed (laughs) along the way. Yeah, Uh, mathematics through um, having to multiply complicated sums in the old English money system, four and nine puts eight times four and all that. So it all adds up for for those listening who are aspiring ar- artists. You know, whatever you're doing right now to make ends meet, head for the uh, gas station. Head for the gas station. <laughs> so now, uh, and for for decades and decades, you've been uh, such an inspiration for an endless stream of creators. Who over the years have been your inspirations? Well, I guess my inspiration came originally from rock and roll, and. I probably didn't realize it at the time, but the rock and roll records I appreciated, not just for the excitement and the rhythm, and, but, but I was always intrigued by the, by the words. And a rock and roll song with, with good words meant more to me than one which didn't have good words. And by, by good lyrics, I mean something like Blue Suede Shoes, I think it's an absolutely brilliant lyric. Um, Tootie Fruity, Wop Bobaloo, Blah Blah Bamboo. This is, it, I loved songs where the words meant as much and were as important as the music. Jailhouse Rock has one of the great lyrics of all time, and and would have certainly held its own on on Broadway. Jerry Lieber, one of the one of the great lyricists, and I was very inspired by by early rock and roll. I, I mean, the Everly Brothers had some wonderfully funny records like Wake Up Little Susie, which again could have been a um, Broadway song, um, and it was really that coupled with my parents' LPs. Remember them, long players. My parents' LPs of all the great shows, like mainly Rogers and Hammerstein, but Oklahoma, South Pacific, Carousel, King and I, and they had My Fair Lady, which was perhaps my favourite, a bit later, West Side Story. And again, I just loved the words, and the words, of course, in all those shows were absolutely brilliant. And it didn't really fire me weirdly with a great ambition to see the show. I was so happy with the album. I was a bit of a vinyl junkie and just loved holding the sleeve and reading the sleeve notes time and time again and looking at the label and trying to work out what everything on the label meant. And that was my inspiration and enthusiasm. And I certainly, when I met Andrew, who was totally um, determined to become a success in the theatre, that hadn't really crossed my mind. I was sort of rather half-heartedly hoping I might, by sheer luck, become a pop star. Um, But I wasn't pushing it hard enough. 
because I didn't really think I was good enough, as Andrew had absolute conviction that he was going to make it as a, as a, as a musical theatre guy. Um, and I, I was very lucky in a way, well, I was very lucky full stop to um, meet Andrew at that time. But then again, he was quite lucky to meet me. <laughs> I should say. And and that's a perfect segue. I'm so you, the collaborations that you have had over the years whether it's uh Andrew Lloyd Webber or Elton John, Abba, Alan Menken. I mean the, each one uh is so extraordinary each artist. Um what for you uh was unique about those collaborations? I know you talk in your podcast about how uh Elton John was the only one where lyrics came first in your creative process, but what else was unique about the collaborations with those amazing partners? Well, in a way, they weren't unique because they were all so good. I mean, you, 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 you could argue that, that, I mean, they were, I think perhaps super outstanding is, is, is um, the word I would use. But what, what was interesting for me was that Elton and Abba um, hadn't really been into the musical theatre before. Um, so I was kind of more experienced in musical theatre than they were. Whereas um, when I joined up with Andrew, Andrew, although he hadn't had anything actually produced, he was much more educated and interested in musical theatre. And I was interested in it, but just didn't know much about it. But in a way, I think, had I been like Andrew, and I'm coming back to the Abba Elton thing, um, had I been like Andrew back in 1965 and and known just as much about musical theatre as he I think we would have been much more conventional because what I I I brought ignorance to the um, table, which was very helpful. <laughs> I I didn't really know the rules. And the first show we did followed all the rules, the likes of us, and it and it didn't really quite work, although it showed us we could work together. Once we went off in a slightly different direction and did 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 shows that were not conventional like Joseph and particularly Superstar then I think we found our own path and we had success and I think working with Elton and with with Bjorn and Benny in particular because Alan was an established theatre brilliant composer but he was already established in that field and he knew all about it Elton and the ABBA boys weren't really hampered by feeling they've got to be a bit like Richard Rogers or a bit like someone else or they've got to follow in this this path um so I think that was what was interesting about working with those guys. And of course, Elton and Bjorn and Benny write the most wonderful tunes. And I think you've got to have good tunes in a show. It helps. <laughs> a story is the most important thing. If you've got a good story, that's number one. But very close behind is, is having some good tunes. Ideally, you want both. And you have uh, endlessly. Um, so you talk a little bit in your podcast about uh, that you've seen productions of your work around the world. Uh, is there a favorite production or unique take on on your work uh, anywhere in the world for any of your shows that that you'd like to talk about? Well, that's tricky. I've seen quite a lot in lots of different countries. Um, and of course, if I'm watching it in a, in a non-English speaking territory, I don't really understand a word of what's going on. But I quite like that because it, A, you don't have to worry about will they get the words right? And, and B, because you wouldn't know if they didn't. And, and, and B, it often makes, gives me a chance to listen to the music without any distraction. So I've seen productions of, of, um, Lion King, say, in many different languages. Um, for example, in, in Korea or Japan. And, 
it's quite nice just to sit back and listen to the wonderful music that that, that Elton wrote for that, you know, and and it's and it's not, as it were, um, I didn't have to worry about whether I, whether I was happy with that line or not. Um, but Superstar, which one of the best superstars I ever saw, was was an Australian tour in 1992, which um, was it was a big arena tour. It was like a big rock show, and it was very exciting. And I hadn't seen Superstar done that big before. I'd seen it at the, the um, Universal Amphitheatre outside, and that was great. But this was like 20,000 people, and it was touring Australia as if it was a big rock band. And they did the show so well. They had very big Australian stars in it. But and, and but I didn't, to be quite honest, I didn't know they worked that well. But they were all so good. Um, and that was that was a version that, that, that particularly stuck with me. Uh, very recently in Regent's Park in London, the open-air theatre, there was a wonderful version of Superstar, which um, matched anything um, before. And it's interesting that both the Australian one I loved and the one I saw in Regent's Park in London last year, it was, it was, it was um, two years running, they were really almost more like concerts, very dramatic. They had all the, you know, they looked great. They had the drama, but just as rock music has become more theatrical, it was quite nice to see a piece like Superstar, which drew on concert tradition as much as on theatre tradition. And as both the arenas and um, Regent's Park were, in essence, outside, they weren't in a conventional proscenium arch theatre. Um, I think that, that for that particular work, it works well. Um, one of the best productions of chess I saw was in a tiny little theatre in, um, in London, um, in Southwark, and uh, it was done by a comparatively unknown theatre company, very good one. And it, that kind of just worked because you were right in the middle of the intimate story. Because uh, chess is, is really, I mean, the, the, the basis of the game of chess is two guys very close together on a board. Mm-hmm. And there, was a, there were two separate love stories going on. And that kind of worked much better than it, than it, than it did on, on, on the bigger stage. But I've seen big versions of chess that have worked, but a lot of them don't quite work. But this, this, this little one in Southwark worked beautifully. So, I mean, I, can, I could rabbit on forever about shows I've I've enjoyed seeing ones that, that I haven't. <laughs> and when you're in the beginning process of, of creating a, a new show, whether it's an original idea or a collaborator suggests it, what is it that, that attracts you? What is it that, that says to you, this has to be a musical and I'm going to dedicate the next 20 years of my life to this, this production. Um, what pulls you in? Well, as I've often said, and I think I even said to you a little while ago, the story is the thing that matters. It's got to be a good story. You, you, you've got to have a, a, a tale to tell. And um, if you, I mean, we didn't really realize at the time, but um, we wanted to do Superstar, for example, and it was a cracking good story. I mean, we knew it was a good story, but it was such a good story that it was because, and such a good idea. I feel if we'd written exactly the same quality material, words and music about something else, you know, Lord Nelson or whatever, it wouldn't have been as good. You know, it was the fact that people immediately, even if they were remotely, if they were totally irreligious, if they disapproved of Christianity, if they loved Christianity, whatever, it, it everybody had a view on it and they wanted to see what we what we were going to say about it. This didn't cross our minds until it was a hit. We thought, oh, that's probably one of the reasons. <laughs> and Ava Perron was a story um, which I I was aware of Ava in my 
uh, childhood when I collected stamps because she was on the Argentine stamps, which was slightly unusual to have somebody other than our own dear queen on any stamps. Um, it was usually some historical figure or whatever, um, and and usually a bloke. But so I remembered her from my childhood, and when I heard a radio program by chance about her, I thought this is a good story. And we were looking at the time for something to follow Superstar with. And Superstar was a tough act to follow. And everybody thought we were one-hit wonders. I thought we were one-hit wonders. So um, Ava Perron was a lucky break. And looking back on the reason I've, I've, I've gone for some shows is that it's usually been something from my childhood. I mean, obviously, I went to, you know, fairly religious schools as a kid in the 50s and 60s. And, and the Pontius Pilate, Judas Iscariot characters, you know, were just as much intrigued to me as, 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 as Jesus and the disciples. I mean, I, I, I had the Bible stories rammed into me, which I didn't mind. I mean, I, they, they were good stories. Um, and Ava Peron from my stamps. And Joseph was my favorite Bible story when I was very young. So in a way, everything I did when I was grown up was based on things that happened to me in my childhood. And I played a bit of chess in my, in my, in my childhood as well. Um, I don't think I went to a Lion King, um, or, you know, went to the zoo particularly often, but uh, um, that was that was a, clearly a good story again, but not my idea, but a good one. And now I heard you are working on an an epic new musical uh, on Machiavelli, which well, I've been working. I've been saying I've been working on this for a while. Um, I have been. I'm not sure if I'll ever get it off the ground. Um, so it's a good story. I mean, if I were 30, I think I would say, yes, in about five years' time, it'll, it'll happen or it won't. I mean, it, or it'll either happen or it'll, it'll try to happen and flop. And I think I ought to get, I mean, I can see a book on Machiavelli just over there on my shelf. Um, it, it is a good story. He's a very intriguing character. Um, I bought The Prince, which was his, his great work, which never got published in his lifetime, weirdly, and then got banned. And um, I bought that book in a paperback when I was still a law student in 1963. And I was very intrigued by um, the character of Machiavelli. Um, and it was always something, you know, I guess for 50 years, I've had that thought, maybe that would make a good, if it might make a good show. Back in 63, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. But I thought if I, if I ever became a writer or wrote a book or wrote a play or wrote a musical, I guess, or even a song, Machiavelli would be a good topic. And I still haven't got around to it. I mean, I've done a lot of work on it. So I'm, I, could, I could go on a quiz show and answer questions on Machiavelli. <laughs> Cannot wait. Uh, I hope oh, that happens. You might have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, am, I am going to be true to my word as, as t- torturous as this is for me because I have an, another three weeks of questions for you. Well, um, I'll, I'll return. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm going Probably to. a different shirt. Okay, we're definitely going to do that. In the meantime, for everybody who is listening to this podcast, get onto my cloud. The most extraordinary podcast, uh, uh, deep dives into all of these amazing shows and uh, uh, the life of um, Sir Tim Rice. You can, you have, you're not going to be, you just block out time. You will have, you'll do them all in one sitting. And also, because this was um, very important to me, uh, oh, what a circus! Um, is a book that you you need to run out and get right away. Uh, but distressingly, it only <laughs> it only goes until 1978. So I'm waiting. Yeah, for I'm, the- I've, I've sort of begun that. I mean, it's quite funny because when it came out in England in 1990, 
nine, I think. Um, and it came out in England and Australia and, and, and did okay. It wasn't, you know, number one bestseller, but it certainly paid its way. And um, I said, what about putting it out in America? And I went to see some agent in America and he said, well, I don't think people know, you know, not know enough about you. And at the time I had four shows on Broadway. And I remember saying, how many more shows do I need to have running right now? To, to get? <laughs> but they weren't interested. I mean, I thought, well, fair enough. Um, I, I just couldn't be bothered, I'm afraid, to, to go around endless agents and, and say, how about this book? Um, because I thought, well, real fans who know about me can order it anyway, and they can get it from England or whatever. Um, in fact, my daughter wrote a novel, which was a big seller in England about 10 years ago, and that came out in America and did much better than my book. So I was very pleased about that. Time for a re-release, I think. Yeah, you... no, I think a, a re-release. <laughs> well, I'm hoping when, when I do volume two, which I really am working on at the moment, um, and the podcasts are a, a very good way of getting getting myself in, into that um, mode. When I do volume two, I think I will try and get, in America anyway, volume one re-pushed. Re, re oh, please. Uh, I would appreciate that so much. And also, if you listen to the first episode, you know you will know a great deal about uh, uh, Tim Rice's mantle. And I hope in future podcasts, we'll get to know uh, other amazing parts of your home. Uh, yeah, the airing cupboard. And, uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining. Uh, Thank you, this, and, and welcome to the Broadway Podcast Network. I'm so excited and honored to have yeah, you. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very much looking forward to that. It's very exciting. Thank you all for joining us for this very special Deep Dive Broadway with Sir Tim Rice. You can find Tim's new podcast, Get Onto My Cloud, at bpn.fm forward slash get onto my cloud. Or you can find the podcast on the BPN app or anywhere podcasts are available. You can also race to get Sir Tim's book, Oh, What a Circus. You won't be able to put it down. Look forward to seeing you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.